A midsummer storm is moving across the region. It's caused flash flooding in Vermont and elsewhere, washing out roads and claiming lives. The latest on flooding in Massachusetts and throughout the Northeast coming up on this Monday, July 10th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, President Biden wants to give cluster munitions to Ukraine to use against Russian forces. We'll hear about the legacy of cluster bombs used in Southeast Asia. For the first time since 1898, a new face is being added to the grand staircase in the New York State Capitol in Albany, that of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And ahead, the performance artist Taylor Mack is the feature of a new documentary, one of his works, a 24-hour show covering 24 decades of American popular music. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. On the eve of the NATO summit and pressure to let Sweden join, it now appears NATO member Turkey is a go. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan reportedly has agreed to drop Turkey's opposition, according to Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. He declined to say when Sweden's ascension would be ratified by the Turkish parliament. NATO's annual summit formally opens tomorrow in the capital of Lithuania. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports on other major issues on the table. Top on the list is Ukraine, and President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to attend the summit and call for a clear roadmap for Ukraine to join NATO once the war is over. But Ukraine will not be the only issue on the table, says Martin Quincey of the German Marshall Fund. Ukraine will be front and center, but there is also China. The Americans especially want to talk about the Chinese challenge to uh, transatlantic security. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Vilnius. In the lead up to the summit, persistent concerns about the U.S.'s decision to supply cluster munitions for Ukraine's defense against Russia. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller spoke to reporters today about the Biden administration's decision to move forward with the weapons despite opposition from key allies and human rights groups. Russia has been using cluster bombs since the outset of this war, cluster bombs with a high dud rate. So the Ukrainians are at some point going to have to conduct these demining operations. Critics warn unexploded bomblets can seriously injure or kill civilians who may come in contact with them after a conflict has ended. Millions of people are under severe flood alerts across the Northeast because of slow-moving storms and flood-generating downpours. The National Weather Service warns its forecast today the storms that began over the weekend and claimed at least one life would dump several more inches of rain in already inundated areas of the Northeast. Northeast, that is. More than 1,000 flights, including those in and out of Boston and New York, were canceled or delayed today. From member station WAMC, Ian Pickus reports... New York officials say it could be weeks before roads that were washed out yesterday are fully repaired. Intense rain has led to flooded roadways and millions of dollars in damage from New York's Hudson Valley to the North Country and Vermont. Governor Kathy Hochul spoke in hard-hit Highland Falls near West Point hours after the worst of it, when more than 12,000 utility customers lost power and one woman in Orange County died. We can't turn our eyes any longer to the fact that we have to build up. Areas, homes and businesses that are in low-lying areas are going to be, need to be lifted up. Otherwise, we're ignoring the reality that flooding is part of life now here in the state of New York. Hochul says it's a reminder that everybody should be prepared to respond at a moment's notice to dangerous floods. For NPR News, I'm Ian Pickus in Albany. From Washington, this is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. State officials say the new law that makes driver's licenses available to people in the country without legal status is going well. Non-citizens became eligible to get licenses July 1st. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. Governor Healy says her administration has been working for six months to get the program up and running. They've hired extra RMV employees, expanded hours, and upgraded IT capabilities. 2,800 learner's permits have been issued since July 1st, double the number issued over the same period last year. The governor says this is just the beginning. We're working hard to get more eligible people a driver's license, which we know is going to make our roads and our community safer. It's also going to open up economic opportunity and mobility for them and their families. The governor encourages anyone who is eligible to make an appointment and find out what is required at mass.gov myrmv. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A seven-year-old girl who had been missing from her Lowell home since yesterday afternoon has been found dead. Middlesex DA Marion Ryan says the body of Anna Mburu was found in the Merrimack River in Tewksbury. Mburu had autism and was nonverbal. Ryan says she does not suspect foul play or negligence. Anybody who has children um, knows children can disappear in seconds. And it appears to be nothing more, based on what we know now, than a tragic accident. Ryan says the rainfall in recent days made the Merrimack River's water rise four to six feet higher than usual. Rain is saturating much of the state today. Five communities in Western Mass, including North Adams, Deerfield, and Williamsburg, have declared a state of emergency due to flooding. The state has dispatched emergency crews to parts of Central and Western Mass. Sarah Porter is public information officer for the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency. We've heard uh, several roads uh, are either flooded or washed out in Hampton County. And we've also received reports from Berkshire County of fire departments there uh, pumping out basements with as much as three to four feet of water. Porter says as of 3 p.m. today, no injuries were reported as a result of the flooding. Much of the state will remain under a flood watch through tomorrow morning. Members of the Massachusetts Task Force One are in Vermont this afternoon to help that state deal with flooding. Forty-five members of the urban search and rescue team based in Beverly will assist local Vermont officials. National Weather Service meteorologists predict up to six inches of rain could fall in parts of Vermont today. Flash flooding has already caused the closure of many roadways in the state. Massachusetts, the Boston area, rain off and on through the afternoon and evening. Pretty muggy, too. Tonight, we should have showers and thunderstorms falling to about 67. Then tomorrow, nice, mostly sunny, breezy, reaching the mid-80s. 71 degrees in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. A powerful storm is dropping heavy rain in New York and New England, and it is a deadly storm. At least one person has died in New York, where Governor Kathy Hochul declared a state of emergency in several counties. High water has also done a lot of damage in Vermont, where rain is still falling. Vermont Public's Nina Keck joins us from Chittenden. Uh, Nina, you've been out in this weather today. Tell us what you're seeing. Yeah, I started driving at 8 a.m. this morning. The rain was steady. That speeded up. I had to have my windshield wipers on high. And it really hasn't let up. 
And with the ground already saturated, I have to say I had a bad feeling driving around because you'd watch farm fields and normally small streams that were filling up and churning, culverts straining on the sides of the roads. And what makes this storm so serious is that it's moving slowly. So the rain just keeps coming and the ground can't absorb it. Mm. Forecasters expect rivers across the state to flood tonight and in uh, flooding in tomorrow. Route 4 is a major east-west corridor that was already grappling with some mudslides that happened near Killington last weekend. And our governor here in Vermont, Phil Scott, declared a state of emergency yesterday and called it an all-hands-on-deck situation with emergency management agencies and uh, various local fire departments. He said there were 14 swift boat rescue teams working right now across the state, two in from New North Carolina, and another team in uh, from Massachusetts to help. I think by noon, approximately 19 people had been helped with boat rescues and evacuations. Uh, and what are the hardest hit areas of Vermont right now? Uh, right now is the, the crucial word in that sentence for that question because it's changing rapidly. Today, though, Londonderry, Ludlow, Weston, um, and along the spine of the Green Mountains, those were towns and areas specifically that were hard hit. Um, so I'm talking about towns in the southeastern part of the state in Windsor County. Ludlow was reporting, for instance, nearly six inches of rain. That's a month's worth that they got in less than 24 hours. Here's Ludlow's town manager. The total scope of what kind of damage has occurred in Ludlow is not even, the onion isn't even peeled back at all right now. I mean, we're, I'm up and down Main Street because that's what we can access and it is not good. That was Ludlow Town Manager Brendan McNamara. And across the border, up to eight inches of rain has fallen in parts of New York today, wreaking havoc there. New York Governor Kathy Hochul tweeted today that Orange County experienced a one-in-a-thousand-year weather event last night. The rain has subsided, she tweeted, but the crisis is not over. She connected the severe weather today to other recent storms in New York, including the deadly blizzard that hit Buffalo last winter. She tied it all to climate change. My friends, this is the new normal. And we in government, working with our partners on the ground, have to work with our communities to build up resiliency, to be prepared for the worst because the worst continues to happen. Nina, this is uh, some of the same area that was hard hit by Tropical Storm Irene in 2011. I imagine people are making comparisons to that. They are, and it's eerie to think about, but at least we're somewhat better prepared this time around. Vermont Public's Nina Keck, thanks for your reporting. You're welcome. Today, a major development just one day ahead of tomorrow's NATO summit. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has agreed to move forward with Sweden's nomination to the military alliance. He was the holdout vote. This brings to an end months of speculation about what Erdogan would do, given his long list of demands for moving ahead with Sweden's nomination. For more on the dynamics at play, we have called Asla Aydin Tashbash of the Brookings Institution. Welcome. Hi, good to be here. Glad to have you with us. President Erdogan had been balking on this for months. So what's your reaction? What do you think happened? Erdogan had been dragging his his feet for almost a year, accusing uh, Sweden of uh, supporting terrorism. Of course, his definition of terrorism and what, who a, what a terrorist is tends to be very wide. 
uh, and accusing Sweden of, uh, you know, harboring terror people he he considers terrorists, mm-hmm. but also uh, issues like Quran burnings that took place in Sweden this summer have not made it easier. But behind the scenes, we had the Biden administration very involved in the process. There were two tracks, one, the public one, between Turkey and Sweden, but the real negotiations were taking place between Ankara and Washington. And again, those Everyone negotiations had, had been happening demands. for months. Do you have any sense of what may have changed to, to shift things today? I think it crystallized in Turkish demand for uh, F-16s. Turkey had been wanting to buy F-16s from the U.S. F-16 there was a congressional jets, hold on this. F-16 fighter jets, quite a big, uh, big ticket item, as in 40 new jets and 80 upgrading 80 of its existing. Of course, Turkey has uh, undergone U.S. sanctions after it bought Russian hardware, Russian missile systems a few years back. So Congress and congressional leaders had reservations, and uh, they were also con- they were concerned about. Erdogan's domestic record, democratic backsliding, but also regional policies, assertive Mm -hmm. uh, policies in the Aegean that uh, felt uh, that, uh, of course, concerned Greeks. It seems the administration worked out a big mega deal that involves Greece. President Biden spoke to a Greek leader uh, a few days ago uh, that involves Greece, Ankara and uh, Congress, U.S. Congress, and uh, did so behind the scenes. And until today's announcement, which just came about less than an hour ago, everyone assumed uh, Erdogan would drag his foot and really not uh, let Sweden in. Indeed. But I'll just I note in the, in the, forgive me for jumping in, there's a little delay on the line. In the Department of Getting Overtaken by Events, you just this afternoon published a, an op-ed in the Washington Post headlined, bargaining with Erdogan over Sweden joining NATO will be difficult. And here we are with the summit not even officially underway and, and we have this deal in place. I do want to ask about one line from that that may not have been overtaken by events. You note, and I quote, that Erdogan has the leverage to extract maximum concessions from the West. What else does he want? Big picture. So he held a press conference this morning uh, that I watched online early uh, here. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and he brought up EU uh, accession negotiations for Turkey, for Turkey's entry into the EU. We want progress on that, he said. Open the way. EU should open the way for Turkey. in So then we can open the way for Sweden to enter NATO. Of course, open the way is a very vague expression. But he's trying to extract uh, also uh, certain concessions from the European Union. Uh, the, uh, this is, of course, happening with uh, a gun pointing to uh, NATO's head. But on the other hand, it is a good signal that Turkey wants to pivot to the West. If that is really the case, that could have all types of implications, both geopol- ge- both in terms of geopolitics uh, in, in, in sort of driving a wedge between Erdogan and Putin. Right. So in, also- in, the, in the few seconds we have left, tell me the one thing you would advise us to keep our eyes on that you'll be watching for as the NATO conference kicks off tomorrow. 
I think Erdogan will be celebrated at tomorrow's conference. He's timed as well. Uh, but we should be watching to see, not tomorrow, but the next few weeks and months to see whether or not this could be an opening for Turkey to pivot back to the West. Okay, we will leave it there for now and we will be watching. Asla Aydin Tashbash of the Brookings Institution. Thanks so much. Thank you. One thing about the internet is that it's always ready to tell us what the right thing to do is, to get us to strive towards some idea of perfection, what the best eyebrow, what the best eyebrows are, or vacations, or meals are supposed to look like. Well, as with those things, there is a look that we have come to expect when we check out real estate listings. Think the perfect kitchen, streamlined, neutral, kind of a blank slate, probably white, like you might find on HDTV or your favorite design magazine's Instagram. Media outlets have made the home more of a financial asset to be maximized. People now are always doing renovations with an eye to what everyone else wants. That's Annetta Grant, an assistant professor at Bucknell University. Along with Jay Handelman of Queen's University in Ontario, she studied the habits of 17 homeowners as they renovated their homes. And we'd ask them, do you have plans to go ahead and sell your home anytime in the future? And typically, they didn't have plans to sell their home in the future. And yet, they were still looking at, you know, what is my my home going to be worth? The researchers found that thinking about your home's future value, what they call making decorating choices based on the, quote, market-reflected gaze, that this leads to anxiety and homogenous design. After all, the average renovation show starts with a laundry list of a home's faults. So why would the average homeowner keep appliances or countertops that they have seen skewered on TV? When that camera crew goes through the home, criticizing and scrutinizing all the things that are wrong with the home, that indicates to people, hey, you know, I may have gotten this wrong or I could potentially get it wrong. And therefore, people are going to sort of see me and, and think of me less for it. In the end, the house is not so much a home as an investment. But Grant hopes her small study helps people shake off anxiety about making the right choices if and when they do renovate and feel more free to enjoy what they have and what they love about home. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the state of Texas has deployed a string of buoys into the Rio Grande as a way to deter migrants trying to cross into the U.S. That story is coming up on WBUR. Wall Street had a spring in its step today. Stocks ended up. The Dow snapped a three-day losing streak. It rose six-tenths of a percent. S&P gained about a quarter of a percent, and the Nasdaq rose about two-tenths of a percent. Boston-based Berkshire Bank plans to close four branches in the state. The Boston Business Journal reports they are located in Pittsfield, Otis, Westboro, and Marlboro. The state says the closures will allow it to enhance its online services. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. 
Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Soggy and gray, that's how it'll stay for a couple of hours. Then overnight tonight, showers, thunderstorms down around the mid-60s. For tomorrow, clear skies, mostly sunny, light breezes should reach the mid-80s. This is WBUR 71 degrees at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. The right to water can be extremely valuable in the drought-prone West, and states and other entities that claimed the water more than a century ago tend to still be best off today. But as the climate gets hotter, that system is coming under scrutiny, especially from those who say it's inherently racist. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk reports. There's a famous story about how San Francisco got its water. In the late 1800s, the city was booming and it needed more water. So city leaders found a pristine river high in the mountains, 150 miles away. For San Francisco, it was important to lock up that water supply for itself and its its growth over time. Steve Ritchie is assistant general manager for the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. To get that water, though, the city had to officially file for a water right, which meant... You write it on a piece of paper and you nail it to a tree. Yep, next to that river, someone nailed a paper to the trunk of an oak tree. And for more than a century, San Francisco has had a very secure water supply. Because in many Western states, the older your water right, the more untouchable it is. When there's a drought, those with newer water rights have to cut back before you do. It's known as first in time, first in right. We and others have invested a lot of money in our systems uh, to make them work based on the principle of first in time and first in right. But that word, first, sounds a lot different based on where you're standing. First in time, first in right is kind of laughable because the ones that were here first were the indigenous people. Gary Mulcahy is government liaison for the Winwintu tribe in Northern California. The tribe's traditional homeland was flooded when California created the largest reservoir in the state with Shasta Dam. But despite their history there, the tribe has no rights to that water. We're the Winwintu tribe. Winwintu means middle water, middle water people. That kind of tells you our culture, our spirituality is based on water. Mulcahy says the current system of water rights is unfair and racist, protecting only the wealthy white settlers who created it. They all got their water through murder, mayhem, rape, theft, and genocide. California lawmakers are now debating how to change that system. State bills would give regulators more authority over the oldest senior water rights, including being able to tell those rights holders to stop using water during a drought. The water rights system absolutely, totally needs to change for everybody's right, for everybody's health and well-being, and not just a select few who think that they are the gods of water and they can't be touched. But those with senior water rights, including agricultural areas and cities like San Francisco, are pushing back and lobbying against the state bills. Water rights you know, are basically a, a form of a property right. 
So having the uncertainty that that supply might be cut at some point, that is very troubling. This century-old system of water rights is being tested across western states, including on the Colorado River, where a two-decade-long drought is causing big shortages. The Navajo Nation has been battling with Arizona for decades about getting their water rights there. Dylan Hedden nicely directs the Native American Law Program at the University of Idaho. Everyone acknowledges that the Navajo Nation has water rights from the Colorado River. The issue is, is that they haven't been quantified, and so no one really knows what the scope of those rights look like. The Supreme Court ruled last month against the Navajo Nation, saying the federal government doesn't have a duty to help them quantify and get that water. But Hedden nicely says discussions about tribes and equity are more front and center than they've ever been. And it creates a chance for everyone in a watershed to have their needs met, not just tribes. Those are the types of opportunities that exist if people can just sort of get over this historical paradigm that this is a zero-sum game. If you get anything, it's coming out of my hide, and therefore I'm going to fight you tooth and nail. That shift, he says, may be one of the only ways to move forward, as climate change makes Western droughts even more severe. Lauren Summer, NPR News. A massive stone carving at the New York State Capitol building has barely changed in 125 years. But as John Campbell of member station WNYC reports, it is about to get a new addition. Inside the building, a stone carver by the name of Adam Paul Heller is on a scaffold, 40 or 50 feet up in the air. He's tap, tap, tapping away at the wall of a huge sandstone structure known as the Million Dollar Staircase. John? Yes. Adam. Nice to meet Great. you, Adam. Come on in. This is my little studio for the oh, weekend. this is incredible. So nice. The staircase is covered in carvings, plants, animals, mythical creatures, and dozens of faces of governors, presidents, founding fathers, and some unknown even to historians. Heller is carving the name of the latest person to grace the wall, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late Supreme Court justice and Brooklyn native. Ginsburg is the 78th famous face on the staircase and the first one added since 1898. She's the seventh woman. The first six were hastily added toward the bottom of the staircase shortly after it opened. That's when newspapers pointed out the original sculptures were all men. I studied the carvings of the women downstairs, and I find them a little primitive, very charming. Meredith Bergman is the artist behind the Ginsburg sculpture. In 2013, she crafted a bust of the justice after observing her in her office. That work depicted Ginsburg in her later years. This new sculpture is different. This portrait is more like the emblem of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So it's it's her younger, she's in middle age. It's kind of how she is remembered. Ginsburg's stone portrait was installed a couple weeks back, though there's still some cleanup work to be done, so it's blocked from public view. Jeanette Moy is commissioner of the state agency that oversees the Capitol. The stone carver invited her up on the scaffold for a sneak peek. Are you ready? I'm ready. Good. There she is. Oh my God. She's very proud. This is beautiful. Justice Ginsburg is staring back at them. Her white collar, her favorite one from South Africa, is carved with exquisite detail underneath her chin. It's a nod to the modest fashion statement she was known for. But it's missing a final touch. Clara Spera is Ginsburg's granddaughter. She says anyone who thinks of her grandmother sees glasses on her face. There was internal debate among the family and discussions with the governor's office and the artist about what style of glasses would be most appropriate. Ultimately, they reach consensus. 
Ginsburg will wear big, round glasses, much like she did during her early days on the court. The artist sculpted them and had them cast in bronze. They'll be painted to match the stone and added to the sculpture in the coming weeks. We shall the Million Dollar Staircase is the capital's town square, where people hold rallies and protests for one cause or another when lawmakers are in town. There are chants and speeches that bounce off the walls, and sometimes even songs like this one from a rally last year. Ginsburg's sculpture will have a front row seat, and her granddaughter says that seems right. In the 70s, Ginsburg wasn't on the front line of protests, but she supported the cause of gender equality with her legal work. The sculpture will be looking approvingly and happily on those who choose to articulate their rights in that way without being necessarily a direct participant in that kind of protest and that kind of work, but acknowledging that the two have to go hand in hand. Governor Kathy Hochul's administration is expected to host a sculpture unveiling in August. For NPR News, I'm John Campbell in Albany. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. In about 15 minutes on WBUR, author and illustrator John Klassen, best known for children's books such as I Want My Hat Back. Hold on to your hat today. It's rainy, breezy, could hear the rumble of thunder a few times today and overnight tonight. Should have lows tonight, about 67 showers and thunderstorms both. Then for tomorrow, a change in the weather. Sunny skies should be breezy, temperatures reaching the mid-80s. Red Sox are off until Friday as Major League Baseball takes its all-star break. Sox closer Kenley Jansen was the lone Boston player chosen for tomorrow's all-star game. The Sox were riding a five-game win streak heading into the break. They take on the Cubs in Chicago this weekend. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The National Weather Service says 45 million people in the western and southern U.S. are facing extreme heat, and that number will increase as we head through the week. Meteorologist Andrew Orison says places that are typically hot will be even hotter than normal, with temperatures approaching 115 to 120 degrees. That would be some of the hottest of the summer so far. We are going to be looking at uh, several instances where we're going to see uh, uh, record high temperatures set um, all the way from the southwestern United States uh, eastward out across portions of the southern plains uh, as we go through the week. Orison says Death Valley between California and Nevada is forecast to reach 125 degrees by the end of the week. Meanwhile, scientists say heat-related deaths in Europe last summer may have led to more than 61,000 deaths, mostly among older people. Ukraine's top diplomat says NATO member states support speeding up talks so his country can join the security alliance more quickly. 
NPR's Joanna Kakissis tells us from Kyiv that NATO leaders there are meeting this week to discuss Ukraine. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba tweeted that NATO allies have, quote, reached consensus on exempting Ukraine from a pre-membership program to join the security alliance. Other member states from Eastern Europe had to successfully complete this program called the Membership Action Plan. It sets political, economic and military targets that a candidate country must meet. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has spent the days before the summit pushing for immediate security guarantees plus a clear timeline for membership. A recent public opinion poll shows that 89% of Ukrainians support NATO membership. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Stocks finished slightly higher on Wall Street. The Dow was up 209 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts officials are warning commuters to prepare for increased traffic congestion this week due to the summertime closure of the Sumner Tunnel. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports Governor Moore Healy visited the project's command center this morning for an update. Governor Healy met with workers who are monitoring congestion during the eight-week tunnel closure. She says traffic wasn't too bad last week, but drivers should brace themselves for increased traffic later this week. Mondays and Fridays, we know we tend to experience reduced traffic in and out of the city. So certainly I think this whole week will be a test um, as we move in tomorrow and, and Wednesday and Thursday. State transportation officials expect the biggest impacts from the tunnel closure will be felt on Thursday. They are encouraging people to avoid driving and to take public transportation. Tips for getting around during the closure can be found on WBUR.org. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn wants the city to review its employee parking policies. The request comes less than two weeks after a fellow city councilor, Kendra Lara, got into a car crash in Jamaica Plain. Police say it happened when she was driving an unregistered, uninsured car without a valid license. Flynn wants the city to check that people using city-owned garages are properly licensed and that the vehicles they're driving are registered and insured. Cambridge State Representative Mike Connolly is leaving the Democratic Socialists of America local branch. The group has its roots in the socialist movement. A group of its members moved to oust him last week by filing a motion. They said Connolly supported policies and politicians against their mission including Governor Maura Healey. At first, Conley says he plans to fight the ouster, but then he said he received an outpouring of support in recent days over his strategy to unite progressives. And it really raised the question, you know, what's the point of continuing with an organization whose new leadership has made it clear they oppose seeking common ground with state leaders or building broader coalitions that actually benefit our constituents? The Boston uh, branch of the Democratic Socialists of America said in a statement that only some members of the chapter moved to expel Conley. Its leadership did not have an official position on the effort. A woman and a man have been shot outside Brockton District Court. It happened shortly after noon, prompting a temporary shelter-in-place order for nearby City Hall and other public buildings. Police say two people are now in custody. A firearm has been recovered. The woman's injuries were considered non-life-threatening. The man was dropped off at a hospital by a private car. And a judge in Dedham Court has declared a mistrial in the case of Emmanuel Lopes. He's accused of killing a Weymouth police officer and a 77-year-old bystander in 2018. Defense lawyers did not dispute his actions, but argued Lopes was mentally unfit to stand trial. Jurors have been deliberating for a week and a half but were unable to reach a verdict. Lopes was facing a life sentence if he had been convicted. 
The forecast, still pretty rainy, light breezes today, muggy through the evening tonight, overnight tonight, showers, thunderstorms down around the mid-60s, and then for tomorrow, clear skies and sunshine should reach the mid-80s. It's 4.36. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The most heavily bombed country in the history of the world, more than Japan, more than Germany, more than Britain, is Laos. Between 1964 and 1973, the U.S. dropped more than 270 million cluster bombs on Laos. Well, we raise this because cluster bombs are back in the news, given President Biden's controversial move to send them to Ukraine. Louis Simons is here in the studio to talk about the legacy of cluster bombs in Laos and what we might learn from it today. Simons is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who reported from Asia and the Middle East for decades. Welcome to our studio. Thanks. Nice to be here. We've been talking about the the number of bombs that the U.S. dropped. What was the human toll? How many people in Laos died as a result of cluster munitions? 10% of the population, which at the time was only 3 million, about 200,000 people, Laotian people, died. They were civilians and military. Of the civilians, half were children, young children. And they died because, and mostly they died because they were attracted to these glittery, uh, brightly painted toys. It's, which is pretty much what uh, what the uh, cluster bombs look like. The numbers are just so hard to ha- wrap your head around. I wonder if we can take it down to the level of just one um, mm. person. Mm. Tell me about your encounter. You were on a dusty road. You're in this tiny village, and you've written you ran into five boys, including mm. one who told you he was seven years old. His name was Nye? Yes, Nye. And as I was walking with my interpreter along the dirt road through the center of of the village, a little group of boys, five of them, young all, and uh, I began questioning them. And this this little boy, Nye, he was missing uh, one arm from above the elbow and one eye was completely gone. And he said that he, like these other boys and like everyone in the village, both children and adults, um, made a living, so to speak, by uh, digging up unexploded bomblets or uh, cluster bombs. And uh, he had one that he was using his hands, his fingers, to scrape out from the dirt, and it blew up uh, in his hand. It took his, his left arm and his uh, left eye. And that's that's the way it was. And this is still, the, the irony, the horrible thing really is that this is going on to this day. Yeah. Yeah. This gets to what happens after the guns are silenced, mm. after the fighting stops. And in the case of Ukraine, the Biden administration is promising to support the cleanup of cluster bombs in some areas is already helping with that because Russia is using cluster bombs uh, in Ukraine. So I wonder if there's been an image or a thought foremost in your mind as a longtime chronicler mm. of U.S. wars and military action overseas as you've tracked the controversy over whether the U.S. should send uh, cluster munitions to Ukraine. You know, it's all too easy to criticize. I mean, having said what I did, uh, you're right to want me to, to come down on one side or the other. But frankly... I'm not asking you to. I'm just curious mm. as someone with your long, long view on mm. this, what, what went through your mind? Well, the first thing that went through my mind was, oh, my God, not again. Uh, because I remember 
that incident with those little boys in that little village in Laos as if it happened yesterday. And I would hate to see it repeated in uh, Kiev or in uh, another city or village in Ukraine. Uh, and I think the possibility is very real. The one point that needs to be made statistically is that the, the U.S. military is now claiming that the dud rate, the failure rate of today's cluster bombs may be as low as 25 to 1%. On the other hand, there are others in the military, qualified people, who say it could be as high as 15%. So that's still less than the 45% in Laos, but it's not terribly encouraging. Journalist Lewis Simons is author of To Tell the Truth, My Life as a Foreign Correspondent. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Texas has started to deploy a barrier of buoys down the middle of the Rio Grande. Governor Greg Abbott ordered the barrier because he says the state is dealing with an immigration crisis at the southern border. But as Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies reports, the buoy barrier may not float after a court challenge. Jesse Fuentes arrived Friday morning at Shelby Park in Eagle Pass, Texas, right on the Mexican border, the bed of his pickup truck loaded with five kayaks. His plan was to lead a group to paddle a stretch of the Rio Grande, but the park and the boat ramp were blocked. For the last seven years, we've conducted so many activities on that river through that boat ramp. I've been on this river for 35 miles. There's never been an issue. The Texas Department of Public Safety declared the park closed as part of the state's ongoing emergency declaration called Operation Lone Star. The park became a staging area for the deployment of a thousand-foot barrier wall. Five tractor trailers arrived and dropped off hundreds of four-foot-tall orange buoys. Governor Greg Abbott announced the deployment last month. We're securing the border at the border. What these buoys will allow us to do is to prevent people from even getting to the border. The plan is to link the border buoys and float them in the middle of the Rio Grande. Eagle Pass is a hot spot for unauthorized border crossers. To stop them, Texas already put razor wire at the water's edge. There is a wall of cargo ship containers lined up along the banks with more razor wire. Then there are Texas troopers and Texas National Guardsmen at the ready. Fuentes says the river has been militarized. This is the most secure border in all of America because there is people in the air, there's people in the water, there's people driving around, people looking at us from the left, from the right, and this is our community. The addition of the buoys to the international waters of the Rio Grande could become a problem for Abbott. Political scientist at Colorado State University, Stephen Mummy says this clearly violates treaties between the United States and Mexico state of Texas isn't authorized to be doing uh, border barriers, which is a, is a function of, of homeland security. Mommy says the buoy system would alter the flow of the river, and that would change the U.S.-Mexico boundary. What Abbott is doing is conducting an irresponsible experiment at the expense of federal and international law. So far, federal officials have been quiet about the buoy deployment. This first batch of buoys cost Texas taxpayers just under a million dollars, and Abbott promises this is just the beginning. Where we can put uh, mile after mile after mile of these buoys. A lawsuit was filed on Friday by Fuentes and his river outfitting business trying to stop the buoys from being put in the Rio Grande. Once they float those buoys down, it's going to even create more problems. Anything that's foreign in in the center of a river, it's not meant to be there. 
The lawsuit claims that Abbott has misapplied the Texas Disaster Act to implement Operation Lone Star by targeting Mexicans and Mexican-Americans who live in the border area, and the buoys would kill Fuentes' kayaking business. Abbott responded with a tweet, quote, This is going to the Supreme Court. Texas has a constitutional right to secure our border. For NPR News, I'm David Martin Davies in Eagle Pass, Texas. You're listening to All Things Considered. Award-winning author and illustrator John Clausen is best known for children's books like I Want My Hat Back and This Is Not My Hat. There are no hats to be found in his latest book, which is also probably his longest. The Skull is Clausen's adaptation of a traditional folktale. It features his signature lush illustrations and wry humor. NPR's Julie Deppenbrock spoke to the author about The Skull and also about why so many kids love scary stories. Ever since he was a child, John Clausen has been drawn to a certain kind of reading material. I was a real scaredy cat about most things, especially film and TV and stuff. I would turn it off pretty quick if it looked like it was about to (laughs) scare me. But books I always really felt brave with, especially books that I knew were meant for me. I think that that was a big deal. And it's something I still sort of try for is that like aesthetically, you want to make sure that the kid knows that they're in territory that was aimed at them. Right. And then you can go a lot of places as long as the type is the right size and the trim is the right size of the book and everything. They feel like okay, I'm allowed to read this. And I always got a real thrill out of books that felt like that, but you were still reading kind of darker, scary stuff. The Skull is definitely darker than Clausen's past work. This new book is sort of the first time I've, I think I've done like a let's tell a scary story kind of feeling one. The other ones are edgy, but I think it kind of sneaks up on you a little bit. But Clausen wants to be clear. This book is not too scary for kids. And there's comedy in it. That's a big part of building trust with his audience of young readers. Clausen says, if you can tell a pretty good joke... Hopefully they trust you as a storyteller to kind of take care of them through a scarier part. Whereas if you haven't been doing anything with them for 10 pages and all of a sudden you scare them, they're kind of wondering who you are. Clausen first discovered a version of the skull at a library in Alaska. And I like to go to folktale sections of like libraries or bookstores when you're in a different town, just because they usually have some random local stuff that you wouldn't find anywhere else. The story stuck with him. The premise was simple. A little girl named Attila runs away from home. And she finds a house in the woods and there's a, an animate skull living in there. And I thought that's such a great start for a story. Clausen was not a fan of how the original folktale ended, with the spell broken and the skull transformed into a beautiful lady in white. So his retelling is a bit different. No spoilers, but here's an excerpt from the story. When it was dark, Otilla made some tea and a fire in the fireplace room. Would you give me some tea, please, said the skull. Otilla took a teacup and poured the tea through his mouth and onto the chair. Ah, nice and warm, said the skull. Thank you. The sweetest and strangest part of this story is the friendship that forms between Otilla and the skull. They take care of each other. Right away, they seem gentle with each other. And I really wanted to write that without sort of writing it explicitly, to just be like, these guys really like each other. Clausen leaves out certain details from the story. Why Attila runs away is never explained. He wants to give kids the space to engage, to think, to feel some way about all of it. A lot of my favorite stories 
they aren't necessarily about a moral or a lesson. They're just sort of like, I feel better now in a very general way. And that was sort of the idea here. It was like, do you feel better? Like, I think I felt better. I used to teach first grade. So Claussen's work was familiar to me. I've seen the smiles kids get on their faces after reading his books and looking at the pictures, which Claussen says are just as important to understanding the story. Julie Deppenbrock, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us on this Monday here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Russian President Putin hosted Wagner Chief Evgeny Prigozhin in Moscow last month, raising new questions over Wagner's future following a failed uprising. We're following that story today here at 90.9. 9 WBUR. There's a flash flood warning in effect until 7.30 tonight. We could have up to three inches of rain in an hour in central Mass from Worcester to Shrewsbury to West Boylston. We're advised to steer clear of flooded roads and not try to cross them. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. In the forecast, rain off and on through the afternoon and evening. On the sticky side, once again, tonight we could have more showers and thunderstorms, especially for the first part of the evening, falling to about 67 degrees. And then for tomorrow, the sun moves in. should be breezy and warmer with temperatures in the mid-80s. It's 449. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. It's been nearly two years since the Taliban seized power once again in Afghanistan, and once again, Afghan women are largely restricted to their homes. Death is better than this. God should just kill us all. We're alive, but we're not living. Now the Taliban have outlawed one of their few remaining places women could call their own, the beauty salon. That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A new documentary tells the story of an epic 24-hour performance that was shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize. Maybe you notice this isn't like a regular concert. The show's creator and performer is Taylor Mack. I knew I wanted to do the whole show as a 24-hour performance. But I only wanted to do it once. The documentary is called Taylor Mac's 24-Decade History of Popular Music. The show captured the sweep of American history from 1776 to 2016. Each hour, Taylor sang songs that were popular in a specific decade. Each hour, history advanced. 
telling the story of this country from slavery through Jewish tenements to women's suffrage. It involved a cavalcade of other performers, puppeteers, burlesque dancers, an orchestra, and a pile of mischief makers Taylor called his dandy minions. I wanted it to be so long that the audience is falling apart. I'm falling apart, we're all falling apart, but because we go through the history all together and because we are, I make the audience do so many things, they start to get to know each other and we actually are building some kind of um, tangible community out of an ephemeral art form. So even as you're falling apart, you're coming together? Yeah, that's the concept. One, two, three, four. In 2016, I first met with Taylor just a couple weeks before the marathon performance. And at the end of that year, when Taylor had recovered, I checked in with him again to ask how it had gone. It felt a little bit like a ritual sacrifice. I mean, it felt like you put yourself through something really difficult and you come out the other side. When we talked before the performance while you were rehearsing, you seemed generally unsure whether you would be physically able to get through it. Yeah. So was there a moment in the 24 hours where you thought, oh, no, I'm really not going to get through it, or a moment when you realized, oh, I'm going to make it, this is going to be okay? At hour five, the air conditioning broke in the space. Hour five puts us in early 1800s? Yeah, 1816 to 26. The space started to kind of get hot, and I started to think, oh, does this space just get hot with all these bodies? Did I just make the worst decision of my life? <laughs> and is this just going to get worse from here? Because hour six was really hot, and then they fixed the air conditioner. And then once we got to Walt, the Walt Whitman Stephen Foster decade, everything started to ease up. And then we were fine. I mean, I, uh, by the end of the show, I was... I was destroyed, but I was, <laughs> but I knew I could get through it. You were still singing, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The specific example you gave when we talked before was Purple Rain. You were like, you know, if we get to Purple Rain and I can't sing it, it'll be like, well, the audience knows the song, they can sing it. Yeah. <laughs> All I could make was legit one octave range. Honey, I could never steal you from another. And I had Stephanie and Thornetta, who are these incredible singers from Detroit, and they had slept the night, they were all fresh, they looked amazing, and it was just this burst of energy that we all needed. Even though you had all of these collaborators showing up over the course of the 24 hours, your core orchestra shrunk by one person each hour. Yeah. And at hour 23, it was just you and Matt Ray, your musical director collaborator. Yeah. Can you tell me about what it was like to go from the end of hour 23 into hour 24 and be alone on stage for that last hour? You know, Matt is such a huge part of this project with me. and. It's been five years of work, and our collaboration has been a lot longer. So it was an emotional experience just to go through all of that with him. He just started to break down on stage. And, and so I was holding him, and he was sobbing in my arms. And the audience was freaking out, cheering and screaming. For, it just seemed forever. So that was really sweet. And then when he left, it felt a little lonely. <laughs> But it felt right. It was slowly a process of 
giving it over to the audience. The entire piece was, okay, we're giving this art, we're giving this history, we're giving this collaboration over to the audience and this vision, and hopefully they will take it and make something with it. When all the artists leave or die and you're alone on stage. I needed to go away too, you know, which is what I did at the end of the show. Then I came home and I fell asleep at the dinner table, you know. <laughs> Literally at the dinner table? Halfway through eating something. I was like, <laughs> and when you woke up the next morning, was it like I, I'm, I'm in a different world now? I'm a different person? Or was it like, what am I going to do with my life? I mean, what, what was it? A, a little bit like that, yeah, yeah. It felt like I, that's what I, I crafted for myself was this massive project that allows me to enter into a new phase of life. What was the before phase and how would you describe the after phase? Before it was, I think so much of our attention has been placed on trying to identify what is wrong. And we haven't spent too much attention imagining a new, what we want it to be and what the alternatives are. Part of a 24 decade for me was claiming what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with our culture right now in America specifically and then actually imagining the world that I want and making that happen. We didn't really say this is the world that we want on stage, but we were making it with the dandy minions and the audience um, and the music and everybody participating. And I think that's what the future holds for me is just making more work that is about making the world that I want as opposed to commenting on the world that is. In that moment, speaking to Taylor in late 2016, Donald Trump had just been elected president. And so I asked how Taylor's experience of telling the story of this country in its entirety shaped his perspective about the moment we were living in. It reminds me that uh, it can happen at any time, that it's not over because you see the patterns uh, over and over and it makes you realize that things are cyclical, they come back in some way. So. You see the people who fought against it and you say, oh, well, that's the person I want to be. So that's what I'll do when it happens. The documentary Taylor Mac's 24 Decade History of Popular Music is streaming now on Max. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com.
from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Kremlin says President Vladimir Putin had a meeting with Wagner Rebellion leader Yevgeny Prigozhin not long after Prigozhin led his troops on a failed uprising on Moscow. Prigozhin is said to have tried to calm any concerns. Assured the Kremlin leader they remained loyal and were ready to continue fighting for Russia. And Peskov said Putin then discussed new employment options for Wagner. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also last year, Metro Phoenix had a record number of deaths related to the heat. The record-breaking continues this year. New measures are being taken to reduce health risks. Been a disturbing trend at concerts this summer. Performers such as Harry Styles and Drake are sometimes hit and hurt by audience members throwing things at them during shows. These stories and numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. After blocking Sweden's entry into NATO, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has reportedly given formal approval for Sweden to now join the alliance. Erdogan agreeing to forward to Turkey's parliament the recommendation for Swedish accession, the expansion coming as Russia continues its invasion of Ukraine. Senpior's Lauren Freyer reports Ukraine has also sought to join NATO, though that will likely not happen right away. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky wants to join NATO immediately. Some member states are ready to issue him an invite ASAP, but Biden says not yet. And so members will be discussing at this summit a pathway for Ukraine to join NATO and continue conditions for that. They may ask for some democratic reforms in exchange. They may also discuss security measures that could kick in even before Ukraine would formally join any alliance. NPR's Lauren Freyer, President Biden, meanwhile, arrived in Lithuania today ahead of the start of the two-day NATO meeting. The notorious former sports doctor Larry Nasser is recovering after he was stabbed at a Florida prison. More from NPR's Carrie Johnson. Nassar is serving what amounts to a life sentence after being found guilty of child pornography and sexual assault. Many of the country's top gymnasts accused him of victimizing them in the guise of providing medical treatment. The Bureau of Prisons says an attack occurred at a Florida prison Sunday afternoon. The Associated Press reported Nassar had been stabbed multiple times by a fellow inmate. Prison officials say no one else was injured and there was no threat to public safety. The FBI is investigating. The prison in Coleman is a high-security facility that houses more than 1,200 people. 
Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The battle between social media platform Twitter and a new messaging program known as Threads, owned by Facebook parent Meta, appears to be heating up. In a cease and desist order, Twitter has threatened legal action against Instagram and parent company Meta over the new text-based app. The app has already drawn millions of users. New cost-of-living numbers will be out later this week. NPR Scott Horsley reports analysts are also keeping an eye on the cost of living in China. The Labor Department is set to report on consumer prices for June later this week. Forecasters think the annual inflation rate fell to just over 3% last month. But core inflation, which strips out volatile food and energy prices, is likely to be higher. China's consumer prices were flat last month, as the world's second-largest economy continues to slow. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is back in Washington after a visit to China, where she met with her economic counterparts. The talks produced no big breakthroughs, but did help to reopen lines of communication between the two countries. Some of the nation's biggest banks are set to report earnings this week. We'll also get profit updates from Delta Airlines and PepsiCo. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 209 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts emergency management personnel are responding to serious flooding issues in western and central Massachusetts. Five towns, including North Adams and Deerfield, have already declared local states of emergency. Massachusetts has dispatched emergency crews to parts of central and western Mass. Governor Maura Healy says she's been in contact with officials in those regions. Right now, things are under control, though the, the, the water is still you know, accumulating. So we're going to continue to watch that through the afternoon and the evening. Safety is, is the first priority, uh, but know that the state is there ready to assist. A flood watch is in effect for those areas through Tuesday morning. Sarah Porter is public information officer with the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency. She says flooding will likely continue into the week as rivers and streams continue to overflow. Even though the heavy rain in the western part of the state has wrapped up for now, um, this is still an ongoing event because of those waterways uh, that are still not reaching their crest at this time. So this is going to be a multi-day event. Porter says roadways in parts of Hamden County, where Springfield is located, have flooded, and drivers are reminded not to attempt to pass through a washed-out road. A missing girl from Lowell has been found dead. The body of 7-year-old Anna Mburu was found today in the Merrimack River in Tewksbury. She was last seen yesterday afternoon in the Belvedere section of Lowell. Officials say she had autism and was nonverbal. Middlesex DA Marion Ryan says there's no reason to believe there was any foul play or wrongdoing by the girl's caregivers. The state will spend more than $2.5 million to provide education and training to formerly incarcerated people. The money will go to 14 organizations throughout the state to help individuals who are leaving prison train for jobs. Massachusetts officials say the state-funded program will also help address workforce shortages. The latest round of funding will provide training for nearly 300 people. 71 degrees now in the Boston area. Isolated thunderstorms for the next couple of hours. Showers after that and then just plain clouds overnight. Temperatures in the mid-60s tomorrow and nothing like today. Sunny and getting hot. Highs in the mid-80s. 71 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Extreme heat is making life difficult across much of the southern and southwestern U.S. right now. The National Weather Service is predicting what it calls prolonged dangerous heat in the area where California, Nevada, and Arizona meet. Well, that includes Phoenix, which is where we find Catherine Davis Young. She's covering the heat wave for member station KJZZ. Hey there. Hi. So it's not exactly breaking news that it's hot in Phoenix in July. So talk us through what makes this particular heat wave unusual. Right. Every summer we get some intensely hot days with temperatures above 110 or 115. But this has just been a particularly long stretch. The record was 18 days in a row at or above 110 back in 1974. Mm -hmm. We've now had 10 days in a row with those temperatures and it's not cooling down anytime soon. So we could see our longest stretch ever this summer. Usually by this time of year in Phoenix, we'll get some monsoon moisture that cools things down a little. And so far, those storm systems just haven't materialized. Hmm. Well, and that can all become very dangerous. What's what's the public health toll of a heat wave like this? Unfortunately, heat-related deaths in Maricopa County, which includes Phoenix, have been skyrocketing in recent years. We had a record 425 heat deaths last summer. That number quadrupled in just a decade. Part of the problem is, as our summers have gotten hotter, our homeless population has also dramatically increased, and unsheltered people face the biggest risks in these temperatures. So what are officials there doing to try to help those people? The state is spending a record amount of money this year to try to address homelessness, but that's obviously not going to happen overnight, and the hot weather is here now. So heat relief efforts have become a major focus for the county and city governments in the last couple of years. Phoenix, in 2021, established the country's first local-level heat response office. That office is working on projects like reflective pavement that can cool the streets, and simpler solutions like just planting more trees to create shade across the city. David Hondula is director of that office. We've already seen urban forestry investments supercharged in the city. And with some of the opportunities available through, through the Inflation Reduction Act, we're very, very hopeful that even more is on the way. So Maricopa County is also spending more on heat this summer than it ever has before. They're putting nearly $14 million toward homeless outreach services and temporary cooling centers where people can get inside and get hydrated. And the county has even launched a pilot program to repair or or replace hundreds of air conditioning units for low-income homeowners. Huh. Say more about that piece of this puzzle, because it seems like so much of trying to keep people safe is, is keeping air conditioners running. Are electrical providers able to keep up with the demand? I've spoken with SRP, which is one of Phoenix's major utilities. They tell me right around this time last year, they hit an all-time record for power use this summer, and they expect they'll break that record again. So they've invested in more battery storage that can serve as backup power, and this year they've built a pair of new natural gas turbines that can get online in only about 10 minutes when demand is peaking. That compares to some of their more traditional technology that may take 12 hours to get running. 
So they say the biggest concern in terms of power outages would be storm activity. But like I mentioned before, part of the reason it is so hot is that we haven't had our usual summer storms so far this year. And is there any rain in the forecast? <laughs> we'll be crossing our fingers, but at least for this week, the forecast still looks very hot. Very hot. Reporter Catherine Davis-Young of KJZZ in Phoenix. Thank you. Thanks. There are more twists in the story of last month's failed Wagner uprising in Russia. The Kremlin now says President Vladimir Putin met with Wagner founder Yevgeny Prigozhin and his mercenaries just days after they led a mutiny against Putin's top generals. Meanwhile, one of those generals has suddenly resurfaced for the first time since the rebellion. To break it down for us, we're joined by NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Hi. Hi, Adrian. So what do we know about this meeting between uh, Putin and Wagner's leadership? Well, for weeks, there's been intense speculation over Prigozhin's whereabouts. Uh, the press didn't know where he was, and the Kremlin basically said the same. And yet that turns out, apparently, not to be entirely true. President in his call with the reporters today, spokesman Dmitry Peskov heard here acknowledged that President Vladimir Putin hosted Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin and nearly three dozen of his mercenary commanders for talks in Moscow late last month, June 29th to be exact. According to Peskov, the meeting took place in the Kremlin and lasted nearly three hours. And during the meeting, President Putin gave his assessment of Wagner's actions. Uh, in turn, Wagner commanders explained why they had done what they'd done, uh, but assured the Kremlin leader they remained loyal and were ready to continue fighting for Russia. And, Peskov said, Putin then discussed new employment options for Wagner. Uh, did the Kremlin offer any details on what that might mean? Well, Peskov didn't provide any details, but let's take a look at what we do know so far. You know, in the wake of the rebellion, Putin presented the failed uprising as a victory for law and order against the Wagner threat. Uh, Putin also touted his own role in an amnesty deal that allowed Prigozhin and the rebels exile in neighboring Belarus, uh, saying it prevented bloodshed and civil war. And yet the terms of that deal over the past few days have come into question, uh, particularly after the leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, told reporters last week that Prigozhin was now back in Russia and that the Wagner fighters had yet to relocate to Belarus as initially agreed. Huh, so a lot of players, a lot of intrigue, a lot that is yeah. still uh, unclear. Meanwhile, though, a, a missing general also reappeared today. What can you tell us about him? Sure. You know, the general in question is Chief of General Staff Valery Garasimov. So he's the number two at the Defense Ministry. Uh, he hadn't been seen in public since the June 24th uprising, and yet suddenly he's back. So in a video released by the Defense Ministry, we see Gerasimov at a base in uniform giving orders and overseeing airstrikes against enemy targets in Ukraine, uh, supposedly on Sunday. Uh, more critically, the video identified Gerasimov in his other current post as the commander of Russia's so-called special military operation in Ukraine. Uh, in other words, he still got his job. So, Charles, there, there's a long tradition of Kremlinology of assessing and analyzing and parsing what the Kremlin is doing, and a long tradition of getting that wrong. So <laughs> at the risk of interpretation here, what do you make of these two events coming to light? Well, what, what I can say with some certainty is this changes the narrative again. You know, remember Putin initially described the rebellion as treason. Uh, then after this amnesty deal was offered in Belarus, Putin said the most important takeaway was that the uprising failed. And it became a story of the nation rallying together against Wagner. 
And now uh, it seems there's a new narrative taking shape. You know, if we take the Kremlin's words at face value, uh, this supposed meeting between Putin and Prigozhin uh, seems to offer Wagner a way to redeem itself back on the battlefield in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Gerasimov's sudden return uh, dampens down rumors he'd been sacked. In fact, Gerasimov now joins Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu in continuing to escape any real consequences, at least so far, uh, for failing to stop the rebellion. Remember, Wagner took control of a major city in the south. It marched almost to the gates of Moscow and opposed. You know, and given all of that, it's starting to feel like no one uh, will be punished for either the rebellion or its roots in Russia's military setbacks in Ukraine. And, and let's not forget, you know, some 15 Russian airmen died in fighting with Wagner during the uprising. Moving on won't be as easy for their families. I've been speaking with NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you. Thank you. Singer Harry Styles was hit in the eye over the weekend while performing in Vienna, Austria. Someone in the audience threw an object in his face during his concert, and this was just the latest in a string of similar and strange incidents. As NPR's Anastasia Tsiolkas reports, Styles is at least the fifth performer this month to have been hit by a flying object on stage. There doesn't seem to be much rhyme or reason to who is getting hit or why. The singer Pink had a fan throw a bag containing their deceased mother's ashes at her during a performance in London late last month. Pink was visibly baffled and disturbed in a fan video shared on social media. In another video taken by a fan and shared on social media, we see Harry Styles doubling over in pain and grabbing his left eye as he walked the stage at his concert in Vienna. So this isn't a standalone incident. It's become part of a weird and disturbing trend at live concerts. While most venues already restrict what fans can bring into shows, cell phones have become projectiles. Drake was hit in the wrist in Chicago by a concertgoer who flung a cell phone at him. Like, I don't need new cell phones, new sunglasses, I don't need nothing. He was unhurt. More seriously, however, the pop singer Bibi Rexa needed stitches after a man threw a cell phone at her head during a New York City show. The man was arrested and charged with assault. Country singer Kelsey Ballerini was also hit in the eye during a performance in Boise, Idaho, this time by a bracelet thrown by someone in the audience. Years ago, she witnessed a classmate die during a shooting at her high school in Knoxville, Tennessee. After the Boise show, she wrote in an Instagram story, quote, We all have triggers and layers of fears way deeper than what is shown, and that's why I walked off stage to calm down and make sure myself, band and crew, and the crowd all felt safe to continue. The plain-spoken singer Adele decided to address these incidents at a recent show in Las Vegas. Have you noticed how people are like, forgetting show etiquette at the moment because they're on stage? Have you seen them? Adele seemed to be at least half kidding, but at the same time, these incidents are no joke. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News, New York. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. On Wall Street, the street had a spring in its step today. Stocks ended up up. The Dow snapped a three-day losing streak. It rose six-tenths of a percent. S&P gained about a quarter of a percent, and the Nasdaq rose about two-tenths of a percent. Quincy-based IntelliCare is confirming its recent layoffs. The company works in the healthcare space to give nurses more shift flexibility. The company would not provide details about how many workers are laid off, but Bostino reports that at least 30 former recent workers have announced their layoffs on LinkedIn. In May, the company reported it had 400 employees. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org answers. And Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners reduce their carbon footprint and improve energy efficiency with heat pumps. Go endlessenergy.com or 775-END-LESS. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Listen to WBUR anywhere you're heading this summer. Just tap to listen live and catch up on all that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now. There is a flash flood warning in effect until 7.30 tonight. We could have up to three inches of rain an hour in central Mass from Worcester to Shrewsbury to West Boylston. And don't forget to steer clear of any flooded roads. Don't try to cross them. Often on showers and thunderstorms around the Boston area this evening. Rain should come to an end overnight tonight. Lows in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, bright skies, sunny and dry with temperatures on the rise. Could make it to the mid to upper 80s tomorrow. Wednesday, sunny again, even warmer in the low 90s. 71 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming, including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown, and Silent Witness. Available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. On Tuesday, the 31 members of the NATO alliance will meet for their annual summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. It's the second summit the alliance has held since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has been invited this week. Though, as NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports, he will likely not get an invitation for his country to join the alliance immediately. I met a key member of the NATO alliance at its fortress-like headquarters outside of Brussels last month. Tomasz Szatkowski, ambassador of Poland to NATO. Szatkowski says until recently, the transatlantic defense alliance was more like a political discussion club. Twelve years ago, in this organization, we would have problems to actually initiate a serious discussion on Russia because some of the delegations would say, we cannot talk about Russia without Russia. That was, you know, the mindset. That mindset has since seen a sea change. Today, NATO has designated Russia as its top threat, part of its new strategic concept adopted at the Madrid summit last year, which also sets out a strategy of forward defense to deter Russian aggression, eight new multinational battalion battle groups and enhanced forward presence were formed after Russia annexed Crimea in 2014 and after last year's full-scale invasion. 
Last month, NPR watched while 8,000 soldiers from 13 nations took part in maneuvers on NATO's eastern flank in Romania. Brigadier General Nicolescu Constantin of the Romanian army said they're focused on collective defense. Together we are stronger. And uh, to be able to work together, we need a certain level of uh, interoperability and uh, the most important uh, trust amongst each other. Yet even as they exercise and train and gain each other's trust, the question of Ukraine and whether and when it should join the alliance looms large. Shatkovsky, the Polish ambassador, says his country would be ready to issue Ukraine a formal invitation to join NATO tomorrow, though he knows other countries are not prepared to do so. Doesn't mean that we want to drag ourselves and NATO to this war. No, by no means. Yes, we all understand uh, the consequences. But he says Russia should not be given what amounts to veto power over Ukraine joining the alliance either. President Volodymyr Zelensky has admitted the war keeps Ukraine from getting a formal invitation to join NATO in Vilnius, but Ukraine is looking for other strong signals of support. Julianne Smith, the U.S. ambassador to NATO, says there's a whole array of options. We expect to be able to deliver a package of both practical and political support that will signal that the alliance will not only maintain its support for Ukraine now, but we want to have a relationship with Ukraine after this war ends and that we will continue to stand with them until the bitter end. Ukraine was first offered a path towards NATO membership along with Georgia in 2008. That process never started, and since then there's been much rethinking in Europe. Martin Cancey is head of the Paris office for the German Marshall Fund. He says today we're seeing a reversal of the situation from 2008. When the Americans pushed for Ukraine to integrate NATO and the French were very much against it, and there were a lot of tensions at the time between Washington and Paris. Now what we see is that the Biden administration is much more cautious about Ukraine's accession to NATO, and Macron started to change the position of France. In a security speech last month, French President Emmanuel Macron said Ukraine had now become one of Europe's strongest militaries. Si nous voulons une paix crédible, so we need to include Ukraine in our security architecture, said Macron. It's the only way to build a credible peace and to be strong in front of Russia. Not absorbing Ukraine into security structures means individual countries will have to continue financing Ukraine's military, which will become a challenge down the road, says the German Marshall Fund's Kansai. The security guarantees that would be provided to Ukraine outside NATO could be quite expensive to uh, the West, to France, to Germany, to the UK. He says absorbing Ukraine into NATO is not only the most credible security solution in the long run, it's also the most cost-effective. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Brussels. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain, sharing the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Dorothy Tiernan. In 1986, Dorothy's father was dying of cancer. On what would be the last day of his life, Dorothy and her family gathered around his bed at the hospital. Her father was unable to communicate, but they sensed he was in pain because he was writhing in his bed. It was it was just an awful thing to see and obviously terrible for him to be experiencing. And I remember asking one of the nurses, his nurse, please 
Can he have some more medication, please? Can he have more morphine? Well, no, he's not supposed to get it. He has to wait for the full four hours and I can't really give it to him now. And it really should be enough for him. And we were all just so traumatized. And I remember that evening, this wonderful woman who was the house manager, the nurse manager covering the whole hospital, came in and, you know, stuck her head in to see how things were. And she could see what my father was was experiencing. And she went and she got the nurse and she said, medicate this man now. But I don't have an order, the nurse said. And this woman said, you go ahead and medicate him now. I will take responsibility for it and I'll deal with it. And the nurse came in very promptly, medicated my father. He finally got comfortable. And within the next, I think, 24 hours or so, he he died. Um, so obviously a very terrible time for us all. But we were relieved that he was out of his suffering because it, it had just been an awful, awful time for him. So I want to remember this woman. I can kind of see what she looks like. I think her name might have been Mary. I don't remember. I just remember the feeling that she gave me, this feeling of, I will help you, I'm in control, and I will do what I can. Dorothy Tiernan lives in Austin, Texas. After that day, Tiernan decided to go to nursing school. For 20 years, she was a hospice nurse, and in her work, she often thought about that nurse who helped her father. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 10 minutes, New York State is working to refurbish its 40-year-old Winter Olympic sports and tourism sites near Lake Placid, but a lot of people are wondering if it's worth it. It's been nearly two years since the Taliban seized power once again in Afghanistan, and once again, Afghan women are largely restricted to their homes. Death is better than this. God should just kill us all. We're alive, but we're not living. Now the Taliban have outlawed one of their few remaining places women could call their own, the beauty salon. That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox are off until Friday as Major League Baseball takes the All-Star break. Sox closer Kenley Jansen was the only player in Boston chosen for tomorrow's All-Star game. 
The Sox were riding a five-game winning streak headed into the break. They take on the Cubs in Chicago this weekend. There is a flash flood warning until 7.30 tonight. It's 5.30. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Heavy rain has washed out roads and forced evacuations in the northeast today as more downpours are in the forecast with possible flash flooding in parts of New York and Connecticut. Officials say the storm has already forced or rather caused tens of millions of dollars in damage while forcing the cancellation of hundreds of flights in the New York and Boston areas today. Vermont has evacuated some campers and Folks stuck in their homes as well after getting several inches of rain. Dan Batsy is Deputy Commissioner for the Vermont Public Safety Department. We know that uh, the damage to property and infrastructure is now unavoidable, uh, but we can save lives with simple common sense, and uh, we ask you to exercise that common sense. He's urging folks to take precautions and stay off the road if they can. The Kremlin now says Russian President Vladimir Putin held talks with the head of the Wagner Group just five days after the mercenary leader launched a rebellion against the country's top generals. NPR's Charles Maine says it's the latest twist over the fate of the mercenary force following the failed uprising. According to the Kremlin, President Putin hosted Wagner chief Evgeny Prigozhin and nearly three dozen of his mercenary commanders for several hours of talks in the Kremlin late last month. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said the Wagner fighters told Putin they remain loyal and would continue to fight for Russia, though in what capacity remains unclear. In the wake of the rebellion, Putin has presented the failed uprising as a victory for law and order against the Wagner threat. He's also touted an amnesty deal that allowed Prigozhin and his fighters exile in neighboring Belarus as preventing more bloodshed. However, that deal was looking in doubt after the leader of Belarus last week said Prigozhin was now back in Russia and the Wagner fighters had yet to relocate to Belarus. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Rain is pelting much of the state today. Five municipalities in the state, including North Adams, Deerfield, and Williamsburg, have declared a state of emergency because of the flooding. The state has dispatched emergency crews to parts of Western and Central Mass. Sarah Porter is a public information officer for the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency. We've heard uh, several roads uh, are either flooded or washed out in Hampton County, and we've also received reports from Berkshire County of fire departments there uh, pumping out basements with as much as three to four feet of water. Porter says as of three o'clock today, no injuries were reported as a result of the flooding. Much of the state will remain under a flood watch through tomorrow morning. Members of Massachusetts Task Force One are in Vermont this afternoon to help that state deal with flooding. 45 members of the urban search and rescue team based in Beverly will assist local Vermont officials. National Weather Service meteorologists predict up to six inches of rain could fall in parts of Vermont today. Flash flooding has already caused the closure of many roadways there. A seven-year-old girl who had been missing from her Lowell home since yesterday afternoon has been found dead. Middlesex DA Marion Ryan says the body of Anna Mburu was found in the Merrimack River in Tewksbury. She had autism and was nonverbal. Ryan says she does not suspect foul play or negligence. Anybody who has children 
um, knows children can disappear in seconds. And it appears to be nothing more, based on what we know now, than a tragic accident. Ryan says the rainfall in recent days made the Merrimack's water rise four to six feet higher than usual. The question to legalize psychedelics could soon be on the state ballot in Massachusetts. A new group has filed paperwork with the state to put the question before voters, although when is unclear. The organization Massachusetts for Mental Health Options looks to decriminalize substances such as mushrooms or mescaline for use in mental health treatments. August 2nd is the deadline to file a 2024 initiative petition. Supporters are also pushing state lawmakers to legalize psychedelics. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Rain off and on through the evening hours. Pretty sticky. Tonight should have showers and thunderstorms. Temperatures about 67 degrees. Clearing by morning. Tomorrow, a lovely day. Mostly sunny, breezy, warmer temperatures in the mid-80s. 70 degrees now in Boston. The time is 5.35. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. It's been more than 100 years since the Tulsa Race Massacre destroyed a prosperous black community in Oklahoma. As many as 300 people are thought to have died in that event. Three of the survivors are still alive and have been pursuing a lawsuit for damages. But they face a setback now. A judge has dismissed their case. Elizabeth Caldwell from member station KWGS joins me now from Tulsa. She was at a press conference with the plaintiff's attorneys today. Elizabeth, thanks for being here. Thank you. I want to get to the details of this case, but first, uh, let's talk about the plaintiffs. Uh, Who are they? Well, this case was brought by survivors from the massacre, and they were children at the time, of course. And given the massacre happened in 1921, there just aren't that many survivors left. They brought this suit against the state of Oklahoma and the city of Tulsa, as well as the county. It would have given compensation to the plaintiffs and their descendants. And they filed this case about three years ago, from what I understand. Uh, So tell me about what's happened in just the last few days. Yeah, yeah, the case was filed several years ago on behalf of just one survivor and a half dozen descendants. It sought damages from the government for doing things like supplying weapons for the massacre. Um, And since then, others have joined the case, but Judge Caroline Wall has dismissed many of them over the last few years. And just a few days ago, Judge Wall um, dismissed the last three survivors and the entire case. And at today's press conference, the lead attorney for the survivors said he is not going to quit. He's going to appeal the case. But there is a real concern that the survivors may die before the case concludes. Um, here's their attorney, Demario Solomon Simmons. And for these three survivors, 109, 108, and 102 years old, to have them, th- their case kicked out, it is a travesty. 
it is absurd is just is a complete injustice so no we did not expect this and the names of the plaintiffs are Lessie Benningfield Randall Viola Fletcher and Hughes Van Ellis what can you tell us about why Judge Wall dismissed this case yeah, well, we don't really know the judge's reasoning because the opinion isn't available publicly, at least not yet. And regardless, Solomon Simmons says he's not just going to pursue an appeal to Oklahoma Supreme Court. He's also looking at the feds as saying he's been urging the Department of Justice to open an investigation. We're going to continue to push that. We're going to continue to push the president of the United States, Joe Biden, who came down here to Tulsa two years ago and said he recognized that the massacre uh, was just that, and justice should be done. And the case was filed under a public nuisance claim, and Solomon Simmons argues that the nuisance of the massacre is still going on today because of the destruction it caused. Is there support, Elizabeth, uh, in Oklahoma for the idea of compensating the survivors uh, and their families? It's been controversial. Um, at least one mayor here apologized to these survivors, but he said publicly he does not support cash payments. He said it would be unfair to tax people who weren't alive when the massacre happened. And there's been some controversial statements from Oklahoma's superintendent of public instruction, Ryan Walters, about the massacre. He since backtracked and said the massacre was racist, but previously he waffled on whether it's even acceptable to teach the massacre. Solomon Simmons, um, the attorney for the plaintiffs, did comment on this political environment. He says it's not been helpful. It shows the, the overarching belief in the state of Oklahoma from elected leaders and officials to try to downplay the massacre at every opportunity, to try to make it seem like it is not as, as bad as it was, it was not tied to race. He said it could be a potentially another year before the case resolves, and they don't have that kind of time. Elizabeth Caldwell for member station KWGS in Tulsa. Thanks. Thank you. New York State is betting big on winter sports and tourism. Officials are on track to spend a billion taxpayer dollars refurbishing public ski areas and sports venues that date back to the 1980 Winter Olympics. But as NPR's Brian Mann reports, some experts say it's a risky investment. Last winter, New York Governor Kathy Hochul was master of ceremonies at a kind of mini Olympics in Lake Placid, a village in the Adirondack Mountains of roughly 2,300 people. Let the 2023 World Interstate Games begin! Thank you. College athletes from around the world rocketed down bobsled tracks. They soared and spun through the sky on snowboards. Switch Winter sports and tourism are big business in Lake Placid, a mainstay of the economy and local culture. And this was the biggest winter sport event in Lake Placid since the epic 1980 Olympics, when the U.S. hockey team toppled the Russians here. To prepare for this year's university games and boost upstate New York's winter tourism economy, New York state officials funneled more than $600 million into its state-run Olympic Sports Authority, which now employs more than 1,500 seasonal and full-time workers. The organization's CEO, Mike Pratt, says the money went to modernize state-run sports competition sites and ski mountains. There are unprecedented uh, capital investments in our facilities, no question about it. We are a good investment. But this new spending comes despite predictions climate change could make the region too 
warm for reliable snow and ice. And critics, including economist Andrew Zimbalist, say big public investments in sports projects like the ones around Lake Placid typically lose money. When you put in a half a billion dollars into renovating what they're calling heritage Olympic venues, you're making an investment without a good part of the investment ever have a chance to pay off. Zimbalist is an expert on public funding for sports mega projects at Smith College. He says cities that host Winter Olympics often tear down sports venues after the games are over because they're too expensive to maintain. In the case of, of Lake Placid, where you're not getting the Winter Olympics that attracts those tourists and attracts that attention, it becomes even more problematic to make an economic argument in favor of it. State officials say New York's story will be different, and last winter's university games with hundreds of college athletes competing in Lake Placid were supposed to be a kind of proof of concept that these investments will pay off. It didn't turn out that way. The event had some amazing competition, but crowds were thin and there were low ticket sales. Mark Galvin is a Lake Placid Village official and business owner. People thought it was going to be like the 1980 games where there were droves of people in the streets. And there was definitely some loud voices saying, you know, where is everybody? State officials told NPR they were disappointed with the crowds and blamed missteps marketing the games. But they said they're convinced these investments are paying off and will attract tourists and sustain jobs for decades to come. But economist Andrew Zimbalist says keeping the authorities' operations going is certain to require even more taxpayer dollars. It's not just $550 million. Beyond that, it will be the maintenance and, and updating that will go on for, for decades and decades. NPR asked the Olympic authorities' Mike Pratt how much he believes Lake Placid sports and tourism sites will eventually cost taxpayers. It's beyond the scope of what I know. It takes time and and it's been hard to budget. For now, the Olympic Authority's reliance on taxpayers is still growing. In May, the organization's board voted to boost their funding requests again, with state officials now saying they'll need roughly $120 million each year from New York's legislature, at least through 2027. Brian Mann, NPR News, Lake Placid, New York. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. We are headed into the home stretch of Wimbledon, the world's oldest and arguably most prestigious tennis tournament. Well, I spent much of last week in London, and I can vouch that many bowls of the traditional strawberries and cream are being scoffed. Also, that big screens are up all over the city so fans can watch, and that a lot of great tennis is being played. Courtney Nguyen has had her eye on volleys on the court and off. She's a senior writer for WTA Insider. Hey there. Hello, how are you? Hi, I am well. Glad to have you with us. Okay, so give us a real quick rundown of the biggest upsets so far, how the favorites coming into Wimbledon are faring. Well, so far, the favorite favorites are still trucking along pretty easily. The top four seeds on the women's side are through into the quarterfinals. The top three seeds on the men's side with Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic are into the quarterfinals as well. So things are bubbling up to be quite competitive and, and marquee on the, the back end of the tournament. Mm -hmm. But the tour tournament has had its upsets. And the big one uh, today that we saw was Christopher Eubanks of the uh, United States, 27 years old, who broke into the top 100 just a few months ago. Um, he's into the first his first quarter 
final at Wimbledon, beat the world number five, Stefano Tsitsipas. And it's been a really inspiring story there um, for him to make it through yeah. on Arthur Ashe's uh, birthday, I believe, um, and uh, third black American to make the quarterfinals at, the, at Wimbledon oh, in well. the open era. So it's a, it's a big story. Now, players from Russia, also players from Belarus, were banned last year following the invasion of Ukraine. They are back this year, although I gather there was some booing after a match that featured a, a Belarusian and a Ukrainian player. Yeah, there was a little, there was a booing from the crowd uh, this week. It was a round of 16 match between uh, Alina Svitolina from the Ukraine uh, and uh, Victoria Azarenka of Belarus. And they haven't been shaking hands, the Ukrainian and Russian and Belarusian players, mainly driven by the Ukrainians who've made it clear behind the scenes and in the locker room that they don't intend to shake hands. And each Ukrainian player has had an individual reason for why they're doing it. Svitolina has said that for her, she doesn't want to give the troops the optics of this photo of a handshake huh. with Russian and Belarusian players, that oftentimes she doesn't have any personal problem with the players themselves, but it's really an optics issue. And so the players have known about this for a long time, but the fans, they're not getting the message. And so they have been booing doesn't matter who the player is. Sometimes it's a Ukrainian, sometimes it's a Belarusian, sometimes it's a Russian yeah. that is on the brunting, brunt end of the, the booing, which is unfortunate. And what about, um, in the just minute we have left, this 16-year-old Russian, Mira Andreeva? Am I saying that right? Yes, you are. Yeah, Mira okay. Andreeva. She's taken the There was some big storm. controversy yeah, just this morning. Walk us through it. Yeah, she, um, young player playing Madison Keys of the United States. Madison Keys storming back from big deficit to get the win. And towards the end of the match, she lunged for the ball, Mira Andreva, and kind of the racket slipped out of her hand and went banging into the grass at Wimbledon. And they're very protective of their grass at Wimbledon. She was given a code <laughs> yes. violation for that. It was her second one of the, of the match. So she got a point penalty. A rough way for the 16-year-old's uh, Wimbledon debut to end, but a pretty harsh call, but uh, but well within the rules to make it. Courtney Nguyen monitoring the tennis and the state of the grass for WTA Insider. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, an about face by Turkey, the country that's been against Sweden's entrance into NATO, has set aside its veto, clearing the way for Sweden to join the alliance. That story and much more still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Don Foot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at House or donfoot.com, beauty on time. Isolated thunderstorms for the next couple of hours, showers after that, then overnight tonight, just overcast, temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, nothing like today. Sunshine getting hot could reach the mid-80s, could reach the low 90s by midweek. This is WBUR in sports. Red Sox are off until Friday as Major League Baseball takes the All-Star break. Join the Radio Boston team Thursday, July 20th at City Space for an evening with Boston chefs showing off their best grilling skills in a live cooking competition. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. It's 549. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. TheMusicEmporium.com
The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. The southern subtropics of Texas, known as the Rio Grande Valley, is a geographically and culturally distinct part of the Lone Star State, as much Mexican as Texan, and it has its own soundtrack, conjunto music. This century-old music, with its thumping backbeat, plaintive vocals, and shimmering accordion riffs, is growing among a new generation of musicians. John Burnett reports. If you want the music to survive, teach it to the kids. That's what they're doing in high schools across the Rio Grande Valley. Here in the band hall at Los Fresnos High School in the southernmost tip of Texas, the award-winning student ensemble Conjunto Halcón is polishing a song for an upcoming competition. Looking sharp on stage in maroon coats, black cowboy hats, and boots, Conjunto Halcón has been the winningest student ensemble in the valley, which means it's the best in America. Director is Juan Longoria Jr., 44, a renowned accordionist in his own right. He started the program here at Los Fresnos a decade ago with 13 students. Last semester, he had 100. We work with drums, bass, bajo quinto, bajo sexto, accordion, vocalists. We'll add sometimes a saxophone, the congas as well. For the most part, it's pretty much traditional conjunto norteño tejano music. Conjunto, Norteño, Tejano, each one is a branch of the same musical tree. It's a danceable fusion of Mexican, European, and American song styles that developed in South Texas and Northern Mexico over the last 150 years. The accordion influence came from the polka bands of Czech, Polish, and German immigrants. Today, Conjunto is as familiar in the Rio Grande Valley as the spindly palm trees, flocks of green parakeets, and orchards of ruby-red grapefruit. Like the blues and bluegrass, Conjunto is the music of working people, the music of everyday life. It's dance music. You have to feel that thump. You have to feel that, that, that want to get up and dance. And, you know, it's happy music. Conjunto programs have popped up in at least a dozen schools in the valley, from Los Fresnos, up the Rio Grande to Roma, and as far north as San Antonio. While students can earn fine arts credits, just like they do with marching band or mariachi, Conjunto competitions are not yet sanctioned by the University Interscholastic League. Juan Longoria says Conjunto is treated like a stepchild. To some people, Conjunto music is not true music because it's not in paper. They don't see it as music because there's no sheet music involved. 
Contemporary conjunto is getting mashed up with hip-hop and reggaeton, and its popularity is spreading to Spanish-speaking neighborhoods far and wide. Longoria has introduced some modern influences, but he tries to keep it traditional, and the students seem to like it that way. It's like a variation of different styles. There's huapangos, there's cumbias, there's um, polcas, you know, it's all just like a Mexican, Tex-Mex type of style. Eliana Aguilar is an 18-year-old bass player. Her dad played conjunto, as did her granddaddy. She plans to be a radiologist, but keep performing this music that's in her heart. I feel like I'm taking part in my culture, and I feel like I can show like part of myself in the music, and so it's, it's just a really nice kind of outlet to show my, my ethnicity. A few miles from Los Fresnos is the town of San Benito that calls itself the birthplace of Conjunto. The legendary Mexican accordionista Narciso Martinez, regarded as the father of Tex-Mex Conjunto, grew up nearby. This is one of the songs he recorded for Bluebird Records in a San Antonio hotel room in the 1930s. San Benito recently opened the Texas Conjunto Music Hall of Fame and Museum, the only one of its kind. It's filled with artifacts collected by the late lifelong Conjunto fanatic Ray Avila. For instance, there's a recreation of Ideal Records, the seminal recording studio in San Benito, where early Conjunto heroes cut their first records back in the 40s and 50s. Avila's daughter, Patty, runs the museum. This room here is the Hall of Fame room. The most pioneers are in this room. We have Hiberto G. Perez, we have Tony de la Rosa, Valero Longoria. The museum celebrates the music born 100 years ago in the cantinas and dance halls across the valley, but it's anything but museum music. Conjunto has never been more popular. Avila says she hears it everywhere, on the radio and at quinceañeras and weddings. And it's just a lively kind of music. has a lot of emotions, you know, the sad stories, the happy stories. It just touches your heart. And I think that's why my dad, Ray Avila, just wanted to preserve that music and keep it alive for the, the young generation. That's 36-year-old Elisa de Hoyos on the squeeze box. She and her family band, the Texas Sweethearts, gave an impromptu concert at the Conjunto Museum. As an accordion teacher, she says the instrument has gained a sort of cult following among young people, propelled by the school Conjunto programs, social media, and competitions. De Hoyas, with her blue-streaked hair and incandescent smile, is a charismatic performer. She looks to the meaning of the Spanish word conjunto. Conjunto, together. Conjunto, together. Um, the kind of music you can do when you, get, when you get together. That's what I want people to know, that it's a culture-rich, loving, and storytelling music. We want to keep it going. I think that's what the beautiful part of it is. As it happens, the recent grand champion of the 2023 Big Squeeze Contest, a statewide accordion competition, was 20-year-old Eligio Martinez. Where did he get his start? The Varsity Conjunto Band at Los Fresnos High School. For NPR News, I'm John Burnett in San Benito, Texas.
The PGA Tour is moving forward with a controversial plan to merge with the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour. And members of the Homeland FA Senate Homeland Security Subcommittee have questions about the deal. You can hear more on the next Morning Edition. Listen on air or online, or you can try asking your smart speaker to play your local NPR member station by name. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Showers and thunderstorms into the evening hours. Overnight tonight, we should have temperatures in the mid-60s. Then tomorrow, sunny. Temperatures in the mid-80s. The U.S. has finally destroyed the last chemical weapons warhead from its stockpile, the project that began 40 years ago. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Ask Siri to play the station when you wake up. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Right now, we are in the midst of an extraordinary weather event that has just devastated communities throughout the Hudson Valley. Stormy weather is racing through Vermont and the Northeast. It's washed out roads and taken lives. We'll hear about the effects of the floods coming up on this Monday, July 10th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the century-old water rights system in the West is under scrutiny with some saying it's unfair and even racist. We'll have a breakthrough on the eve of the NATO summit. Sweden is to become a NATO member. Turkey has dropped its opposition. And for the first time since 1898, a new face is being added to the grand staircase in New York State Capitol building in Albany, that of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late U.S. Supreme Court Justice. RBG was born and raised in Brooklyn. It's 601. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. NATO Secretary General says Turkey is dropping its objection to ratifying Sweden's bid to join the military alliance. 
NPR's Peter Canyon reports the announcement came on the eve of a NATO summit in Lithuania. In a post to Twitter, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, quote, has agreed to forward the accession protocol for Sweden to Turkey's parliament as soon as possible and to ensure ratification. Erdogan has been critical of Sweden for allowing supporters of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which Turkey considers a terrorist group, to raise money and stage demonstrations in Sweden. Stoltenberg's tweet said in part, quote, This is an historic step which makes all NATO allies stronger and safer. President Joe Biden said he welcomed Stoltenberg's announcement. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Diyarbakir, Turkey. A crowded race for Michigan's open U.S. Senate seat is shaping up. Candidates are lining up to run in next year's primary election at what is expected to be a very competitive race. Michigan Public Radio's Rick Pluta has the story. Actor Hill Harper is the latest to join the Democratic primary race for the U.S. Senate in Michigan. Our economy works for the richest, while the most vulnerable have to work even harder than ever to keep up. That's not freedom. Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin is the top fundraiser, according to early reports. Current and former members of Congress, state elected officials, and business people are among those launching campaigns for both the Democratic and Republican nominations. The general election race next year is expected to be tight in a swing state President Joe Biden won in 2020 with just over 50 percent of the vote. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluta in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The southwest remains in the grips of dangerously hot weather and flash floods are hitting New England and New York State. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports both types of extreme weather are driven by climate change. Some parts of the southwest have endured more than a week above 110 degrees. It's one of the worst heat waves the region has ever seen. And flash floods in the northeast have washed out roads and bridges and inundated homes. Intense heat waves and heavy downpours are both more likely because of climate change. Many of the record-breaking heat waves happening now would be impossible without human-caused global warming. And as the Earth heats up, the warmer air can hold more moisture, which falls as torrential rain. Both heat and flooding are expected to worsen in the coming years and decades, as the Earth warms further. Cutting greenhouse gas emissions dramatically and immediately would help control both types of disasters later this century. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Stocks closed higher today on Wall Street, though some tech sector shares lost ground. The Dow was up 209 points to 33,944. The Nasdaq rose 24 points. The S&P 500 gained 10 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts officials are warning commuters to prepare for increased traffic congestion this week due to the summertime closure of the Sumner Tunnel. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports Governor Moore Healy went to the project's command center this morning for an update. Governor Healy met with workers who are monitoring congestion during the eight-week tunnel closure. She says traffic wasn't too bad last week, but drivers should brace themselves for increased traffic later this week. Mondays and Fridays, we know we tend to experience reduced traffic in and out of the city. So certainly I think this whole week will be a test um, as we move in tomorrow and, and Wednesday and Thursday. State transportation officials expect the biggest impacts from the tunnel closure will be felt on Thursday. They are encouraging people to avoid driving and to take public transportation. Tips for getting around during the closure can be found on WBUR.org. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. 
Cambridge State Representative Mike Conley is leaving the Democratic Socialists of America's local branch. The group has its roots in the socialist movement. Its members moved to oust him last week by filing a motion. They said Conley supported policies and politicians against their mission. At first, Conley says he planned to fight the ouster, but he says he got an outpouring of support in recent days over his strategy to unite progressives. And it really raised the question, you know, what's the point of continuing with an organization whose new leadership has made it clear they oppose seeking common ground with state leaders or building broader coalitions that actually benefit our constituents? The Boston branch of the Democratic Socialists of America said in a statement that only some members of the chapter moved to expel Conley. Its leadership did not have an official position on the effort. A woman and man have been shot outside Brockton District Court today. It happened just after noon, prompting a temporary shelter-in-place order for nearby City Hall and other public buildings. Police say two people are in custody. A firearm has been recovered. The woman's injuries were considered non-life-threatening. The man was dropped off at the hospital by a private car. Registration is now open for the Boston Athletic Association Half Marathon. The race will be held November 12th at 8 in the morning. It starts and ends at Franklin Park in Boston. You can register at BAA.org. The field size is limited to the first 9,000 entrants. And more than $1 million is going to cultural and creative community organizations around the state. The money is part of the latest round of grant funding for Mass Humanities. The grants will go to 35 community organizations. According to Mass Humanities, the money will help the organization staff up, increase hours, and continue to recover from the economic fallout of COVID-19. Heavy rain has been falling in parts of central and western Mass. If you happen upon a road that's flooded... Go the other way. Steer clear of it. Don't try to cross. It's really dangerous to even try. This is 90.9 WBUR, 70 degrees in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting those working to improve the nation's immigration system and celebrating the contributions of immigrants to American life. More at carnegie.org slash great immigrants. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. A powerful storm is dropping heavy rain in New York and New England, and it is a deadly storm. At least one person has died in New York, where Governor Kathy Hochul declared a state of emergency in several counties. High water has also done a lot of damage in Vermont, where rain is still falling. Vermont Public's Nina Keck joins us from Chittenden. Uh, Nina, you've been out in this weather today. Tell us what you're seeing. Yeah, I started driving at 8 a.m. this morning. The rain was steady, that speeded up. I had to have my windshield wipers on high, and it really hasn't let up. And with the ground already saturated, I have to say I had a bad feeling driving around because you'd watch farm fields and normally small streams that were filling up and churning, culverts straining on the sides of the roads. And what makes this storm so serious is that it's moving slowly. So the rain just keeps coming and the ground can't absorb it. Mm. Forecasters expect rivers across the state to flood tonight and in uh, flooding in tomorrow. Route 4 is a major east-west corridor that was already grappling with some mudslides that happened near Killington last weekend. And our governor here in Vermont, Phil Scott, declared a state of emergency yesterday and called it an all-hands-on-deck situation with emergency management agencies and uh, various local fire departments. He said there were 14 swift boat rescue teams working right now across the state, two in from New- North Carolina, and another team in uh, from Massachusetts to help. 
I think by noon, approximately 19 people had been helped with boat rescues and evacuations. Uh, and what are the hardest hit areas of Vermont right now? Uh, right now is the, the crucial word in that sentence for that question because it's changing rapidly. Today, though, Londonderry, Ludlow, Weston, um, and along the spine of the Green Mountains, those were towns and areas specifically that were hard hit. Um, so I'm talking about towns in the southeastern part of the state in Windsor County. Ludlow was reporting, for instance, nearly six inches of rain. That's a month's worth that they got in less than 24 hours. Here's Ludlow's town manager. The total scope of what kind of damage has occurred in Ludlow is not even, the onion isn't even peeled back at all right now. I mean, we're, I'm up and down Main Street because that's what we can access and it is not good. That was Ludlow Town Manager Brendan McNamara. And across the border, up to eight inches of rain has fallen in parts of New York today, wreaking havoc there. New York Governor Kathy Hochul tweeted today that Orange County experienced a one-in-a-thousand-year weather event last night. The rain has subsided, she tweeted, but the crisis is not over. She connected the severe weather today to other recent storms in New York, including the deadly blizzard that hit Buffalo last winter. She tied it all to climate change. My friends, this is the new normal. And we in government, working with our partners on the ground, have to work with our communities to build up resiliency, to be prepared for the worst because the worst continues to happen. Nina, this is uh, some of the same area that was hard hit by Tropical Storm Irene in 2011. I imagine people are making comparisons to that. They are, and it's eerie to think about, but at least we're somewhat better prepared this time around. Vermont Public's Nina Keck, thanks for your reporting. You're welcome. Today, a major development just one day ahead of tomorrow's NATO summit. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has agreed to move forward with Sweden's nomination to the military alliance. He was the holdout vote. This brings to an end months of speculation about what Erdogan would do, given his long list of demands for moving ahead with Sweden's nomination. For more on the dynamics at play, we have called Asla Aydin Tashbash of the Brookings Institution. Welcome. Hi, good to be here. Glad to have you with us. President Erdogan had been balking on this for months. So what's your reaction? What do you think happened? Erdogan had been dragging his his feet for almost a year, accusing uh, Sweden of uh, supporting terrorism. Of course, his definition of terrorism and what, who a te- what a terrorist is tends to be very wide. Um, and accusing Sweden of, uh, you know, harboring people he, he considers terrorists, but also uh, issues like Quran burnings that took place in Sweden this summer have not made it easier. But behind the scenes, we had the Biden administration very involved in the process. There were two tracks, one, the public one between Turkey and Sweden, but the real negotiations were taking place between Ankara and Washington. And again, those negotiations had been happening for months. Do you have any sense of what may have changed to to shift things today? I think it crystallized in Turkish demand for uh, F-16s. Turkey had been wanting to buy F-16s from the U.S. F-16 fighter jets. Go on. And there was a congressional hold on this. Quite a big, uh, big ticket item, as in 40 new jets and 80, upgrading 80 of its existing. Of course, Turkey has uh, undergone U.S. sanctions after it bought 
Russian missile systems a few years back. So Congress and congressional leaders had reservations and uh, they were also they were concerned about Erdogan's domestic record, democratic backsliding, but also regional policies, assertive uh, policies in the Aegean that uh, felt uh, that, uh, of course, concerned Greeks. It seems the administration worked out a big mega deal that involves Greece. President Biden spoke to a Greek leader uh, a few days ago uh, that involves Greece, Ankara and uh, Congress, US Congress, and uh, did so behind the scenes. And until today's announcement, which just came about less than an hour ago, everyone assumed uh, Erdogan would drag his foot and really not uh, let Sweden in. Indeed. I'll just note in the in the Department of Getting Overtaken by Events, you just this afternoon published a, an op-ed in the Washington Post headlined, Bargaining with Erdogan over Sweden joining NATO will be difficult. And here we are with the summit not even officially underway, and, and we have this deal in place. I do want to ask about one line from that that may not have been overtaken by events. You note, and I quote, that Erdogan has the leverage to extract maximum concessions from the West. What else does he want? Big picture. So he held a press conference this morning uh, that I watched online early uh, here. Um, it, and he brought up EU uh, accession negotiations for Turkey, for Turkey's entry into the EU. We want progress on that, he said. Open the way, EU should open the way for Turkey. In So then we can open the way for Sweden to enter NATO. Of course, open the way is a very vague expression. But he's trying to extract uh, also uh, certain concessions from the European Union. Uh, the, uh, this is, of course, happening with uh, a gun pointing to uh, NATO's head. But on the other hand, it is a good signal that Turkey wants to pivot to the West. If that is really the case, that could have all types of implications, both, geopol both in terms of geopolitics, uh, in 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 sort of driving a wedge between Erdogan and Putin, right? But so in, in the in the few seconds we have left, tell me the one thing you would advise us to keep our eyes on that you'll be watching for as the NATO conference kicks off tomorrow. I think Erdogan will be celebrated at tomorrow's conference. He's timed as well, uh, but we should be watching to see not tomorrow but the next few weeks and months to see whether or not this could be an opening for Turkey to pivot back to the West. Okay, we will leave it there for now and we will be watching. Asla Aydin Tashbash of the Brookings Institution, thanks so much. Thank you. One thing about the internet is that it's always ready to tell us what the right thing to do is, to get us to strive towards some idea of perfection what the best eyebrows are, or vacations, or meals are supposed to look like. Well, as with those things, there is a look that we have come to expect when we check out real estate listings. Think the perfect kitchen. Streamlined, neutral, kind of a blank slate, probably white, like you might find on HDTV or your favorite design magazine's Instagram. Media outlets have made the home more of a financial asset to be maximized. People now are always doing renovations with an eye to what everyone else wants. 
That's Annetta Grant, an assistant professor at Bucknell University. Along with Jay Handelman of Queen's University in Ontario, she studied the habits of 17 homeowners as they renovated their homes. And we'd ask them, do you have plans to go ahead and sell your home anytime in the future? And typically, they didn't have plans to sell their home in the future. And yet, they were still looking at, you know, what is my my home going to be worth? The researchers found that thinking about your home's future value, what they call making decorating choices based on the, quote, market-reflected gaze, that this leads to anxiety and homogenous design. After all, the average renovation show starts with a laundry list of a home's faults. So why would the average homeowner keep appliances or countertops that they have seen skewered on TV? When that camera crew goes through the home, criticizing and scrutinizing all the things that are wrong with the home, that indicates to people, hey, you know, I may have gotten this wrong or I could potentially get it wrong. And therefore, people are going to sort of see me and, and think of me less for it. In the end, the house is not so much a home as an investment. But Grant hopes her small study helps people shake off anxiety about making the right choices if and when they do renovate and feel more free to enjoy what they have and what they love about home. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR this evening. Coming up on Marketplace, Marketplace's anchor Kai Rizdahl rode along with U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on a trip to China. He'll have a debrief coming up. Marketplace starts at 6.30. Wall Street had a spring in its step today. Stocks ended on the upside. The Dow snapped a three-day losing streak. It rose six-tenths of a percent. S&P gained about a quarter of a percent. And the Nasdaq rose about two-tenths of a percent. Harpoon Brewery in the Seaport is now home to pickleball courts. It's called Pickleball Social Club. It also has shuffleboard and cornhole. People can reserve a court ahead of time on Hub Sports Boston's website. Pickleball enthusiasts can also join the league for beginners or for more experienced players. And gasoline prices are holding steady. According to AAA, the average cost of a gallon of regular unleaded in the state is three fifty-five. It's six nineteen. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's where the world comes for answers. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Soggy and gray is how it should stay for the next couple of hours. Overnight tonight, overcast skies, temperatures in the mid-60s. And then for tomorrow, a lovely day. Sunny, breezy, warmer. Highs in the mid-80s could reach the low 90s by Wednesday. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include DEC, presentation coaches, designers, and writers who use the power of storytelling to help speakers connect with audiences. More at presentationsbydeck.com.
That's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. The right to water can be extremely valuable in the drought-prone West, and states and other entities that claimed the water more than a century ago tend to still be best off today. But as the climate gets hotter, that system is coming under scrutiny, especially from those who say it's inherently racist. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk reports. There's a famous story about how San Francisco got its water. In the late 1800s, the city was booming and it needed more water. So city leaders found a pristine river high in the mountains, 150 miles away. For San Francisco, it was important to lock up that water supply for itself and its its growth over time. Steve Ritchie is assistant general manager for the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. To get that water, though, the city had to officially file for a water right, which meant... You write it on a piece of paper and you nail it to a tree. Yep, next to that river, someone nailed a paper to the trunk of an oak tree. And for more than a century, San Francisco has had a very secure water supply. Because in many Western states, the older your water right, the more untouchable it is. When there's a drought, those with newer water rights have to cut back before you do. It's known as first-in-time first in right. We and others have invested a lot of money in our systems uh, to make them work based on the principle of first in time and first in right. But that word, first, sounds a lot different based on where you're standing. First in time, first in right is kind of laughable because the ones that were here first were the indigenous people. Gary Mulcahy is government liaison for the Winmamwintu tribe in Northern California. The tribe's traditional homeland was flooded when California created the largest reservoir in the state with Shasta Dam. But despite their history there, the tribe has no rights to that water. We're the Winmamwintu tribe. Winmam means middle water, middle water people. That kind of tells you our culture, our spirituality is based on water. Mulcahy says the current system of water rights is unfair and racist, protecting only the wealthy white settlers who created it. They all got their water through murder, mayhem, rape, theft, and genocide. California lawmakers are now debating how to change that system. State bills would give regulators more authority over the oldest senior water rights, including being able to tell those rights holders to stop using water during a drought. The water rights system absolutely, totally needs to change for everybody's right, for everybody's health and well-being, and not just a select few who think that they are the gods of water and they can't be touched. But those with senior water rights, including agricultural areas and cities like San Francisco, are pushing back and lobbying against the state bills. Water rights you know, are basically a, a form of a property right. So having the uncertainty that that supply might be cut at some point, that is very troubling. This century-old system of water rights is being tested across western states, including on the Colorado River, where a two-decade-long drought is causing big shortages. The Navajo Nation has been battling with Arizona for decades about getting their water rights there. Dylan Hedden nicely directs the Native American Law Program at the University of Idaho. Everyone acknowledges that the Navajo Nation has water rights from the Colorado River. The issue is is that they haven't been quantified, and so no one really knows what the scope of those rights look like. The Supreme Court ruled last month against the Navajo Nation, saying the federal government doesn't have a duty to help them quantify and get that water. 
But Hedden nicely says discussions about tribes and equity are more front and center than they've ever been. And it creates a chance for everyone in a watershed to have their needs met, not just tribes. Those are the types of opportunities that exist if people can just sort of get over this historical paradigm that this is a zero-sum game. If you get anything, it's coming out of my hide, and therefore I'm going to fight you tooth and nail. That shift, he says, may be one of the only ways to move forward, as climate change makes Western droughts even more severe. Lauren Summer, NPR News. A massive stone carving at the New York State Capitol building has barely changed in 125 years. But as John Campbell of member station WNYC reports, it is about to get a new addition. Inside the building, a stone carver by the name of Adam Paul Heller is on a scaffold, 40 or 50 feet up in the air. He's tap-tap-tapping away at the wall of a huge sandstone structure known as the Million Dollar Staircase. John? Yes. Adam. Nice to meet Great. you, Adam. Come on in. This is my little studio for the oh, weekend. This is incredible. It's so nice. The staircase is covered in carvings, plants, animals, mythical creatures, and dozens of faces of governors, presidents, founding fathers, and some unknown even to historians. Heller is carving the name of the latest person to grace the wall, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late Supreme Court Justice and Brooklyn native. Ginsburg is the 78th famous face on the staircase and the first one added since 1898. She's the seventh woman. The first six were hastily added toward the bottom of the staircase shortly after it opened. That's when newspapers pointed out the original sculptures were all men. I studied the carvings of the women downstairs, and I find them a little primitive, very charming. Meredith Bergman is the artist behind the Ginsburg sculpture. In 2013, she crafted a bust of the justice after observing her in her office. That work depicted Ginsburg in her later years. This new sculpture is different. This portrait is more like the emblem of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So it's it's her younger. She's in middle age. It's kind of how she is remembered. Ginsburg's stone portrait was installed a couple weeks back, though there's still some cleanup work to be done, so it's blocked from public view. Jeanette Moy is commissioner of the state agency that oversees the Capitol. The stone carver invited her up on the scaffold for a sneak peek. Are you ready? I'm ready. Good. There she is. Oh, my God. She's very proud. This is beautiful. Justice Ginsburg is staring back at them. Her white collar, her favorite one from South Africa, is carved with exquisite detail underneath her chin. It's a nod to the modest fashion statement she was known for. But it's missing a final touch. Clara Spera is Ginsburg's granddaughter. She says anyone who thinks of her grandmother sees glasses on her face. There was internal debate among the family and discussions with the governor's office and the artist about what style of glasses would be most appropriate. Ultimately, they reach consensus. Ginsburg will wear big, round glasses, much like she did during her early days on the court. The artist sculpted them and had them cast in bronze. They'll be painted to match the stone and added to the sculpture in the coming weeks. We shall the Million Dollar Staircase is the capital's town square, where people hold rallies and protests for one cause or another when lawmakers are in town. There are chants and speeches that bounce off the walls, and sometimes even songs like this one from a rally last year. Ginsburg's sculpture will have a front row seat, and her granddaughter says that seems right. In the 70s, Ginsburg wasn't on the front line of protest, but she supported the cause of gender equality with her legal work. 
the sculpture will be looking approvingly and happily on those who choose to articulate their rights in that way without being necessarily a direct participant in that kind of protest and that kind of work, but acknowledging that the two have to go hand in hand. Governor Kathy Hochul's administration is expected to host a sculpture unveiling in August. For NPR News, I'm John Campbell in Albany. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports. The Red Sox are off until Friday as Major League Baseball takes the All-Star break. Sox closing pitcher Kenley Jansen is the only member of the team chosen for tomorrow's All-Star game. The Sox, as a team, are back on the job this weekend. Some isolated thunderstorms for the next couple of hours. Showers after that, then just plain clouds. Temperatures in the mid-60s tonight. Tomorrow, nothing like today. Sunny and getting hot. Temperatures in the mid-80s. Then on Wednesday, another sunny day could creep up to the low 90s. 71 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org.